0: So I don't know if you're churched here or not, but um, in Grants Pass, in Josephine County, we had this thing that went on, started in the late 90s, and it was called Church in the Park. You guys remember that? Yeah. So it was, the idea was all the churches of Grants Pass, of Josephine County, one weekend would get together and have a church service at Riverside Park, and it would be this great thing, and, and cool things would happen. So... That, that has been going on. COVID kind of stopped it. I don't know where it's at now, to be honest. I haven't checked, but it's a big deal, right? So seven years ago, exactly, Edgewater had been going for almost 10 years at that point. Church of the Valley came to me and they said, hey, we would like you to teach at the next church in the park. Now I'm human. So part of me was like, it is about time. I know it's arrogant, but there was part of me that said that, right? So they kept going. They're like, because the theme this year is fatherlessness and how growing up without a father, how it affects the children. I said, okay, okay. Yeah, they said, you know how it leads to higher drug use and higher suicide, and you're most, more likely to go to prison, um, you have a lower IQ, you have a lower vocabulary. And I said, okay. They said, yeah, so when we were thinking about that, you came to mind, because you grew up fatherless. And I was like, I'm offended by you right now. I don't know if I want to do it now. <laughs> We can be offended sometimes by what people say, can we not? We're in a section of Mark where Jesus begins to offend people. And he does it over and over and over and over again. Have you ever been offended by Jesus? Have you ever been reading the Bible and like read and there's something in there that you're like, ah, I didn't know the Bible said that if you have never been offended by God, if he loves everything that you love and hates everything that you hate, that's not God, that's you. Because Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. Do you know that? He offends the liberals because he has a very, very strong moral ethic. He says to the woman caught in the very act of adultery, go and sin no more. Stop what you're doing. He doesn't say, hey, act authentically. Hey, if you feel this way, that must be right. What does he say? Deny yourself. You're broken. You're screwed up. Deny those things take up your cross, sacrifice yourself, and follow me. He offends the liberals with that. He offends the conservatives because this rich young ruler comes to him who I'm sure had worked his tail off and got his MBA and done it. And he's like, hey, Jesus, I wanna follow you. What do I need to do? What does he say? Sell everything you have and give it away to poor people and then follow me. And what does that rich young ruler do? No way, man. I work hard for my money. Those poor people, they've done nothing. I'm not giving them anything. And he walked away from Jesus. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender because he knows every one of you is broken in some way and I want to reshape you into a new kind of humanity that can actually rule and reign with me forever. So what does Jesus do in this text to offend people? He forgives the wrong kind of people. He hangs out with the wrong kind of people. Check this out. It's forgiveness. It's Mark chapter two, picking it up, verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. What a great story, huh? These four guys grab their buddy. They carry him on his bed. I don't know how far, most likely quite some distance. They get to the house where Jesus is. They cannot get in because it's way too crowded. It's like a phone booth with clowns, right? Where they just keep coming out. You're like, how do they all fit in there? But they don't give up. They climb up on the roof. They cut a hole in the roof. I'm sure they checked with the homeless association to make sure it was okay, right? Big enough to fit a bed in. And then they lower this bed down into the room in front of Jesus. How crazy is that? What would you think if you were the homeowner and started seeing like sawdust come down? Like, what in the world? What would you think? Do you think right now if they're saved and they're in heaven, the homeowners were like, are upset? Yeah, I can't believe what they did to my roof. You know what? I think they're overjoyed. Yeah, man, our house was used for Jesus. They're stoked. I can't wait to meet them in heaven. Hey, this is the roof people. How cool. I'm amazed at the generosity of God's people. Amazed at it. So we had a high school camp with about 140 people up there. And a bunch of you, because it was at Lost Creek Lake, a bunch of you took your boats and went up there and shared them with our high schoolers. Thank you. Thank you for that. One couple, I could not believe this. They bought a brand new wakeboard boat. Do you know how much wakeboard boats are? The price of this one, you could buy a house, right? And it wasn't gonna arrive in time. So this man, the dad, drove out to Tennessee, picked up the boat to get it back here in time for the high school camp, right? And I saw the boat, it's unbelievable. It's like sitting in a jet cockpit in it, right? Everything is computer controlled. It's got wake shapers, cruise control. It makes like a 20-foot tsunami behind it. It's just unbelievable. Got a hide a bed. It will make lunch for you, give you a massage. Like, you just can't believe it, right? It's like, wow. And I'm like, man, you're going to let high schoolers on this? They're going to cut a hole in your roof. That's what they're going to do this boat, (laughs) I saw it, I'm like, I wouldn't let me on this boat. Are you kidding? But they said, that's why we bought it. That's why we bought it. It's unbelievable to me. Here's what happens when you use your stuff like that. It doesn't own you anymore. You get to enjoy it. It doesn't own you anymore. And man, God rewards, no doubt. These people were rewarded. Yeah, our house was used, right? Here's what I love. Four guys grabbed their buddy travel with him, don't give up, tenaciously go up on a roof, cut a hole in the roof, and lower their buddy down. What good friends are those? Do you have four friends that would do that for you? I hope you do. If you don't, here's what I tell people. Friends are like a bank account. If you'll start making deposits in them today, when you go bankrupt, they'll carry your loan. That's what happens. That's what happens with good friends. That's what these guys do. The Bible says, a friend must show himself-friendly. Uh, something happened here where these guys, they were so invested in this man, man, they would carry him to Jesus. So they do all this, and the man is lowered in front of Jesus. And what is everybody, this crowd? What are the four friends? What do they want? Healing, right? Heal the man. What does Jesus do? forgives him. What's the problem with that? The man's legs are still messed up. and The four friends are like, Jesus, come on. We want to swim with this guy. We want to walk with this guy. We want this guy to go to the bathroom without us helping him every single day. Jesus, really? Right? He forgives him. He forgives him. How crazy is that? A couple things to notice. What moves Jesus in this story? It says he saw their faith. How do you see faith? By actions. He saw men who had carried their friend, who did not give up, climbed up on a roof, cut a hole in the roof, and lowered him down. He saw their actions and said, I saw your faith. In the West, we think faith is like the way that we arrange some ideas in our head that's what we think faith is, like theologically or how, what we think about Jesus and all that kind of stuff. That's not faith. Read James chapter two, where James says, "Huh, uh that's not faith. Faith is actually what you do. If you really want to know what you believe, don't look at what you say, look at what you do. How you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your free thinking time, how you react to people, that's actually what you believe. What we say changes all the time. What I say can change based on whether I listen to NPR on the way to church or I listen to Lars Larson on the way to church. That can change what I say. What I say can change whether I had my Dutch bros or I didn't, whether I'm happy or sad, right? It's all over the place. But what's constant in my life is what I'm doing and how I'm living. That's what I really believe. I live what I believe. I do it's what I do. It's not, faith is not just primarily how I arrange some ideas in my head about Jesus. Faith is actually how I am walking out and applying that and living that every day. And I have to ask myself when I read this, can Jesus see my faith? Is the way that I'm living, is the way that I'm living how I'm doing life, can Jesus see my faith? I hope so. And he says, there, it's plural not singular, they faith. Faith is personal, no doubt, but it's never private. Faith is never lived out privately in the Bible. 120 times in the New Testament, it says one to another. It's one of the most repeated things. Faith, yeah, private, no doubt, or personal doubt, but never private. It's always lived out in community with people, with buddies, with others. That's what it is. And here's what I tell young people your friends are either going to be bringing you to Jesus like these guys did or dragging you away from him. And I don't have to be a prophet to tell you what you will be in one year. I just look at your four buddies and whatever they're doing, in one year you'll be doing it. They'll drag you one way or the other to Jesus or away from Jesus. It's their faith. It's plural. That's what it is. But Jesus here, prioritizes forgiveness above healing. Now, why would he do that? If you read commentaries on this, there's the thought that this man may have done this to himself, that maybe he had got an STD that untreated in those days would have led to this kind of paralysis because it was well known at that time that that could happen pretty big deal. And Jesus knows this. Healing is not deep enough for you. It's not deep enough. It's temporary. It's just going to be temporary because eventually every single one of us will be paralyzed. Do you know that? That as you age, your body just becomes the rebel, right? It rebels against you. It doesn't obey you anymore. It doesn't do what you ask it to do. Have you noticed that? that there comes a time in your life when you tell your body to say, to jump, and it says, no. You're like, dang, run, and it says fall, right? That's, that's gonna come for all of us. So healing, healing is temporary. So Jesus here, I gotta deal with the main issue. And the main issue in life is not what's happened to us or how we've been identified or all that kind of stuff. And like today, we have this like, like way of not really naming sin anymore. We have all these like um, words for things that used to be kind of like, well, that's just sin, right? Stress and anxiety. Now it's like, a, it's a disease. It's an illness. Go get a pill for it. But the Bible's like, no, it's actually an incorrect way of living. That's what the Bible says. So we get all these things. And I think they're just, they're fruit of something else, right? PTSD, ADHD, ADD. I'm not saying that those, those aren't real, but I think they have a root to them. I think the root to a lot of what is messing up America's mental well-being—the very, very lowest part of it—not the fruit—it's sin. That's what—that's where what the problem is. But we, as a culture, we don't really believe there's sin anymore. We don't. And if we do believe there's sin, we kind of just believe that'll go away. It, it, it'll just now—if I just ignore it long enough, it'll go away. Is that true? If someone sinned greatly against you, would you be okay with that? i will just go away. So you go home today, and when you go to your house, your house has been ransacked and robbed. Someone has sinned against you. Are you gonna be like, well, it'll just go away. It'll be fine. Or are you gonna say, I want justice. Someone needs to pay. I'm gonna find the person that did this. All of us will be, someone needs to pay. Well, the truth is, We had this hangover from Genesis chapter three where we trashed God's good stuff. That's what we did. And all of us can, we we can just sense it. It's like still kind of there in all of us. And we think God's angry with us. He's mad at us. And that root produces all these things, all these manifestations in our lives, incorrect thinking, depression, suicide, restless leg syndrome, whatever it is, I don't know. It just comes out in a multitude of ways. Body harm. You know, that's been very common throughout history. Look at the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. What do they do? They cut themselves to try to make God happy because they sensed in their heart, God is angry at us. They have a collective guilt in them that you're never good enough. You can never do enough. You're never able to meet the righteous demands that your God wants of you. You replay the tape in your head and you keep coming up with, I got an F. So here's what Jesus does. He deals with that. He looks at this man and says, son. What an interesting term, huh? Son. Like he's his dad. Son, your sins are forgiven. He cuts the anchor that's drowning this man. Your sins are forgiven. Now, how do people respond to that? Check this out, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They're not saying it out loud. They just had this thought in their head, questioning their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? How scary would it be to be sitting around hanging with Jesus, right? You just have some kind of thought go through your head. Right? Some bad thought go through your head. And Jesus just looks at you and is like, Really, man? I just sit there and quote Psalm 23 over and over, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, right? No, no spare thought. So these guys just had this flashing thought. Man, he's a heretic. He's blaspheming. So what does Jesus say? Immediately, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves and said to them, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So this group called the scribes, these are the varsity Bible guys. I call them the Bible refs because they fall around Jesus with their whistle in their mouth and their flag ready. And every time Jesus does something they don't like, they're like, Flag, 15-yard penalty, right? That's who they are. So they're constantly waiting for anything that they don't like. And when Jesus says to this kid, this young man, son, your sins are forgiven, what do they do? flag. Why? Because they had a 1,400-year-old system by which you got forgiven of your sins. That's why. It was, if you sinned, you took a sacrifice, a lamb, You went to the temple. You got in line with all the other sinners. You waited for your chance to get up there. The priest, you'd say what you had done. The priest would inspect the lamb. If the lamb was accepted, it would be sacrificed. And the priest would look at you and declare to you, your sin is forgiven. There's a system. Jesus had skipped all that. And so they're blowing their whistles. and They're throwing their flags. What? You can't do that, right? Secondly, they're saying, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to do this? It'd be like this. Let's say you, myself, and Mark Scudstat go out for lunch. And while we are sitting there, you say something that offends Mark Scudstat. So he stands up and punches you in the nose. And I look at Mark and I say, Mark, I forgive you. And Mark's like, well, that was easy. So he punches you again. And I say again to Mark, and I forgive you again. What would you say to all that? You'd say, you have no right to forgive Mark. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. What are you doing? The only way I could do that is if I was the creator of Mark. And Mark was violating the very purpose I had created him for. That's the only way I could say that. And they know this. The only way Jesus can say that is if he is this man's creator, and this man had violated the very purpose that he had created him for, it's the only way he could say it. It's Jesus right here saying, I am his creator. And he has violated the purpose that I created for him for. And that's why I alone can say to him, your sins are forgiven. That's our first story of forgiveness. Here's the second story. verse 13, And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. I have that underlined in my Bible. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's a tax collector. Last week, we saw the leper. Lepers were feared because their disease could be contagious. Tax collectors were hated. 2,000 years later, tax collectors are hated. (laughs) Nothing has changed. But these guys were much worse because here's what they were. They were crooks. And they were traitors. So Rome didn't have drones and didn't have TV screens where you could sit halfway across the world and kill people. So how does Rome rule this gigantic empire? They had to get traitors. And they got these people that were Israelites to work for them. So tax collectors were people who had turned on their own And the way that they made their money was this. Rome said, you need to collect $1,000 a day. But in order for them to get paid, they had to collect more than that. So they were actually stealing from their own people to line their own pockets. So they were traitors and they were crooks and they were hated. Rome despised them because they were traitors and Israel despised them because they were traitors and crooks, right? They were the most hated people in the world. So tax collectors were a group of men that had watched Rome come in and butcher their neighbors, maybe butcher their own family. And in spite of all that, they decided, yeah, we'll work for them. They were despised. Now, why would a man ever do that? The only thing I can think of is Levi had become so disenchanted. Maybe as a kid, he had read the Old Testament and heard the stories of Moses setting the people free. And he was like, okay, God's going to set us free from Rome. But year after year, he just saw the boot of Rome crushing him year after year after year. The only way you could pay taxes to Rome was to use Rome's currency. And one of the coins that we found from back in this day, it's a picture On one side of the Caesar, on the back of it was a Roman soldier standing on the neck of a Jewish man. That's how you had to pay your taxes. A reminder, a reminder you've been crushed and subjugated by this group. And Levi, Levi works for them. He was a bad, bad, evil man. He would be hated But at some point, Levi just decided, you know what? I'm not fighting this thing anymore. I choose comfort. I choose safety. I choose retirement. I choose ease over that way. And that's what he did. And while he is sitting in this tax booth, sitting in his sin booth, stealing and being a betrayer of his people, what does Jesus say? Follow me. He is called when he is doing the very thing that would make him the most despised person in Israel. He's called while he's sinning. How amazing is that? Jesus didn't say, hey, quit all that stuff, get yourself together, and then come follow me. Jesus says, in the midst of your junk and your stuff, come and follow me. How good is that? How good is that? In the midst of his sin, come follow me. What's keeping you from following him? What's keeping you from serving him? What's keeping you from praising him? If it's sin, you have the absolute wrong vision and view of Jesus. Jesus is not standing up there, arms crossed, waiting for you to get things all figured out, get yourself all dappered up, and then you can follow him. Jesus says, I will call you in the midst of your brokenness and your crookedness and your terribleness. And just as you are, you can come and you can follow me. How brilliant is that? How brilliant. So then there's responses to him. Check this out. Verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisee, this is a certain group of the scribes, right? They're the Bible refs. This is a group of them and these were the guys, the Pharisees were the really fundamentalist, like suit wearing, like mm, every law has to be followed. These were these guys. So this is a very, 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 very fundamentalist Bible raft. He is good. If you flinch, it's going to be a flag, right? So that's these guys. So the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Three responses. There's the sinner's response to Jesus calling the worst of the worst in his sin to follow him. And what's their response? Party. They're like, yeah, let's party. Levi is like, I'm inviting all my buddies over, all my sinners and all my tax collectors because you've got to meet Jesus, right? Something happens to believers, I think. When we first get saved, man, we're trying to get all of our buddies saved, right? Because essentially our entire community is sinners. But then as you go along in your Christian life, what happens Pretty soon, you look at your contact list, and it's all believers. Maybe one or two unbelievers. Like something shifts. And so we don't hang out with tax collectors and sinners anymore. And then we get this weird idea that if we do hang out with sinners, we might catch the sinnies. Oh, I can't hang out with them, man. I might catch the sinnies. It gets weird. Right? Not Jesus. Not Jesus. I think we more need more Levi nights. Or maybe we throw a party at our house for the neighborhood and we invite all the wrong people, all the unbelievers, all the pagans, right? You invite them to your house. And you don't get them to your house and then like, okay, we're having a Bible study in the book of Romans, open it up. Or like if your unbelieving neighbor's like, dude, this is so much fun, bro. Why are you doing all this? You don't have to answer, well, I want to have fun with you before you burn in hell. Like, you don't do stupid stuff like that. You just demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance. I think if Christians actually lived out that fruitfulness in their lives, churches would be packed because we've got a hungry world that wants fruit because they're not getting anywhere else, right? So these guys, man, they're like, yeah, party with Jesus because they knew they were sinners. Number two, it's the scribes. What's their response? (laughs) Flag, right? How can Jesus not only call Levi the worst sinner in the world, but then go have a meal with him? Wrong, foul, 15-yard penalty. And here's why. Meals for us aren't as sacred as they were 2,000 years ago. Because 2,000 years ago, the way that you ate a meal symbolized something. It symbolized oneness. There would be a giant loaf of bread. It was one loaf of bread. And each of you would like tear off a piece of that bread. And then there'd be all these little bowls around that you would dip that bread in, all kinds of sauces or soups. And then you would eat of that soup. And there was no problem 2,000 years ago with double dipping. (laughs) Everyone did it. You are sharing your disease, sharing your germs with each other, right? That's the way it was. Got some mercy here. So now you do too, right? Which either led to herd immunity or the plague, right? One or the others is going to happen. But either way, you're in it together. So it was a really special thing. It meant I am one with you. That's what it meant. So Jesus is eating with sinners, these scribes, they blow their whistle and they throw their flag, and they say, "Hey, why is it that Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors? What's the only thing that they could conclude from that? The only way they could say that is if they believed that they were not sinners, right? But let's be honest: there's only two groups of people. There's Jesus, and there's sinners." And if Jesus was not going to eat with sinners, he would always eat alone. That's the truth. And they miss that. And because they are arrogant and prideful, they miss out on the party and they miss out on the king because of their arrogance and their pride, not really realizing that they were just as sinful as the tax collector and the prostitute. So there's a final response, and it's Jesus. And he says this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I'm going to be king of a different kind of kingdom. Not the wealthy, not the healthy, not the wise, not the educated. My kingdom is going to be populated with sick sinners, What king says that? What king is like, you know what? I don't want those people. I want the sick sinners. That's who I want. My entire kingdom is gonna be made up of sick, sinful people. How awesome is that, right? I want the used car salesman. (laughs) I want the tax collector. I want the traitor. I want the crook. I want the prostitute. I want the broken. And the old system was, get a sacrifice and fix yourself up before you can come in. The new system is I will call you while you're in your sin booth to follow me. And I only have one requirement and that's it. Don't be a mullet Christian. You know what a mullet Christian is? Remember that hairstyle? I had it when I was in high school. It was cool. It still is cool for some. So it's Billy Ray Cyrus, right? He's the king of the mullet. Nice and buzzed on the front, but really long in the back. So what's the the definition of a mullet? Business in front, party in back, right? And there are Christians that think, yeah, Sunday business, Monday party. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you get out of your sin booth. You don't get to go back to your sin booth on Monday. You get out of your sin booth and you follow me. I will accept you just as you are, crooked, broken, tax-collecting betrayer, but you don't get to go back to it. You follow me, you come out of it. I have a saying, I wrote it down at home. Jesus is easily pleased but never satisfied. He's constantly saying, leave that and come to me. Let me make you into a new kind of humanity that's different. It's good job, Matt. Let's go. I have more for you. I want want you to follow me. I want you to be conformed to me. That's what the Savior says. There's one question left in this text. It's a question that Jesus asks. And the question is this, which is easier, he says to those scribes, which is easier to heal this man or to forgive his sins. Now, what would the obvious answer be to those scribes 2,000 years ago? Well, to heal him. I think we might say the same thing today because we have forgotten how expensive, how costly forgiveness is. You look at ancient tribes, right? And, And tribal people, I think they're more connected to these things than we are. The tribal people know this. They still do it to this day. When they've done something offensive, they'll take a chicken, which is very expensive to them, and they will sacrifice that chicken because they know I've done something offensive. And for me to get back in is gonna cost something. Forgiveness costs something. They know it. Innately, intuitively, they know it. They know forgiveness costs. Healing took Jesus's word, forgiveness took Jesus's life. Which one is easier? Healing, forgiveness cost him everything. So how do we respond? How do we respond to what the Bible calls Jesus's unspeakable gift? We're supposed to be full of gratitude Are you kidding? You would call me out of my sin booth. You would accept me exactly as I am. You would ask me to follow you, fully accepting me in my brokenness and my terribleness, knowing that you will change me into your image. What's our response supposed to be? Are you kidding? How can you be so good to me? You know what communion was originally called? It's still called this in some circles. It's called the Eucharist. You know what Eucharist means? Thanksgiving. This is Thanksgiving. We're thankful to Jesus. God, the son who left comfort, perfection, became a man and said, I will spend the most precious substance in the universe, Matt, to purchase you back. That's what I'm gonna spend. Right? That his greatest deed met my deepest need, the thing that heals me from all the bad tendencies that I have is the unconditional acceptance of my king. That he says to me, he says to you, your sins are forgiven. Do you know that? Do you really know that? That your king says to you today, your sins are forgiven. And so, Jesus, today, would you restore to us the marvel, the majesty that our sins are forgiven? It made the self-righteous so upset because grace, because grace upsets every single system. There's no rules. There's no laws. You can't calculate it. You can't even comprehend it. That's grace. The only thing you can do with grace is receive it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's given to the wrong people. But sinners party. Each of us know that we're sinners invited to the party. May we remember you. May we know that our sins are forgiven. Let's eat together. So in order to get to the cup, it takes a little work. Don't grab the plastic part. Bend the plastic part up like four times. Then you'll see a little ripple in the aluminum. Grab that ripple. And then you can open it. It's nearly impossible, but it is possible. May every heart in here that has received you as Lord, and as Savior, may they hear your spirit whisper, your sins are forgiven. The tape has been erased. Let's drink together. Amen. So we'll sing one more song. We'll offer prayer up here after that song. People be up here that love to pray for you. Cast all your cares on him. We offer baptism. The New Testament in the book of Acts, when people realized how good the good news was that the king has come. He's come for the sick and for the sinful, for the tax collector, for the crook, for the betrayer. When they realized it, they said, what should we do? And the refrain over and over in Acts is, repent and be baptized. And maybe that's your day today. you go into these waters and it's an embodied remembrance of what's happened to you, that you The old you, the tax collector, the crook, the betrayer. The rebel goes into these waters and dies. And a new you comes out. The palingenesia, a regenesis, a recreation, a new creation. That his spirit has breathed into you this glob of dirt and made into the very temple of the Holy Spirit. You embody that remembrance today. Maybe today is your day for that be baptized. Would you stand for one final song?